That's what we're talking about David today. Smiles. We're gonna definitely we're gonna get into it because um, the man had a massive, massive uh, legacy in jazz. Um, you know, listen, there's movies you can watch. You can read his autobiography. You can listen to his music. We're just gonna go through some of it. But I would say for you know, if I said for me, where I gleaned onto Miles Davis, I mean maybe. I mean, yeah, I got into fusion early and John McLaughlin and all that stuff, and then all of a sudden it was like, hey, he played for. When did you get into it first time, and how? What was the record? What was your first? So, for for Miles Davis, good question. Like the first record I got into, I was I don't think we got Bitches Brew. When I say we, me and my friend Matt, we bought it, put his house. We didn't understand it. We were just like, oh, okay, this is okay, this is interesting. We just bought it. Go, oh look, we're interesting. We have it, but I don't think we listened to it. How old were you? Yeah, uh, high school, uh-huh. high school, and then I knew who he was, but I didn't know I was allowed to listen to jazz. You have this mentality like, oh, that's something separate. Right now, a kid can go hit his phone and go listen to Miles Davis, but the uh, he, you know he crept into your life through also when he like there was the actress Cicely Tyson who he was married to, and Cicely Tyson still made some movies and things. So when I was in eighth grade, years before that, the teacher mentioned, oh, Cicely Tyson's married to Miles Davis, jazz trumpeter. And I'm like, okay. So then I knew who he was, but you didn't listen to, you know, Miles that much um, when you're young. You're just trying to find out little pieces about him. Then we got the bitches, we got bitches brew. But then um, I remember getting Decoy and um, the albums he had at that time that I was just checking out. I wasn't in going into Kind of Blue or any of his uh, period. But just so you know, by in 1989, I saw Miles Davis mm-hmm. at the pier. With John McLaughlin uh, trio opening up, which had uh, John McLaughlin, Jonas Helborg, and uh, Trilot Gertu doing percussion, mm-hmm. and Miles opened with uh, sorry Miles played with his electric band afterwards. He had Kenny Garrett in the band. He had all uh, great players. Yeah, it wasn't was he wasn't in, he wasn't there at the time, but I also would say that I don't I, I didn't think Miles that night was awesome, fantastic. He was more stepping on his players, playing over their solos. Something uncomfortable on the stage, but the band was supreme. But hey, that's the way things are sometimes. But then um, it was very immediate kind of. Yeah, I just was. So I was always I was getting into the electric stuff. But then then I got more deep in the '90s. Is when you take the dive like head head first, and yeah, you go by kind of blue because you start to learn about it through even a John McLaughlin. You're like, oh wow, how do I not have this? So then. You get kind of blue. You read all the stuff on it, 
And it's, you know, significant 1959 release, modal jazz, John Coltrane, Cannibal Adderley, Bill Evans, Wynton Kelly, Paul Chambers, and Jimmy Cobb. You know, everyone will talk about that to the end of time. So good to learn and listen to the album as far as the patience mm-hmm. for acoustic jazz, which anyone can begin there. Also, um, in a silent way, where I had an interest because I'm like, oh, wow, Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, Joe Zawinul, Dave Holland, Tony Williams, mm-hmm. Wayne Shorter, all on one record. And it was, uh, it was it was very, when you heard the electric keyboards kick in and the guitar, it was very... Um, Miles, because M- Miles played over everything in his tone. Miles had an unmistakable tone. And then you start to dig around. You realize, oh, wow, Miles has all these decades of bands of music to listen to, so you're having to keep up. You go out, you buy Roundabout Midnight. Then you get into his, uh, not just his quintet in the 50s with John Coltrane, Red Garland, Paul Chambers, and Philly Joe Jones. But then you get into the, the quartet in the 60s, which... Tony Williams, Ron Carter, Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, and Miles. And you're like, wow, this guy is able to move and make different moves. But he sounds, he has a sound that carries whether he's playing faster or slower. In the 70s, when that electric period happened, it it moved into something that wouldn't be categorized as jazz or purely jazz. You know, two guitar attacks, funk. All these things were happening. He was exploring, you know, he was exploring styles and yeah. he had his agendas, whatever, but it was always music. It was always music, really. He, it's like it, it remained authentic, whatever his uh, take was on like current, whatever trends. I mean, he makes his own trend. I think did. with that, uh, call it anything at uh, Isle of Wight, it's, uh, yeah. it's a good example where, where he was at that time. The Isle of Wight um, concert, where you, you probably saw that. That footage you saw the the movie thing was called. Uh, yeah, I mean, call uh, it anything uh, he, because he said when they asked him what, what, made, what he should we call this piece. He made a movie. Five minutes ago, there's a, there's a film called anything. Electric Kind of Blue, I believe they called it. They, yeah, they, there's a documentary about the entire. So yeah, were, all, all and they play the concert. Like Keith Jarrett and it was uh, so exciting because you see Keith Jarrett playing electric keyboard, mm-hmm. Chick Corea on the other side playing electric keyboard, Dave Holland playing freaking electric bass, Jack DeJohnette was there, I and, think, and uh, Gary Bartz on um, on sax and you're watching that on the stage in front of all these hippies all these people that were there to see Jethro Tull and, and free free was there. and it, it carried and the who I think yeah that, that was I mean just like Miles interesting did, combination yeah it handled that crowd it, it really handled that crowd to have those those virtuosos um, playing you know it's funny all these guys had different styles that they played away from Miles and inside Miles you're just playing Miles music and then when he t- I also found it interesting about his self-exile period you know in the 70s when he's just like oh 1975 after he makes that album and carter the uh, double live album in japan just like pan and pangea um he you know the guy's like yeah i'm not doing music anymore leave me alone i'm going to my apartment to do drugs and hang out and i don't want to talk to anybody and he had this solitude you know isolation period where he was being coaxed to come out of retirement Eventually, I think the guy's name was George Butler from Columbia. I think uh, if you're listening and I got it wrong, forgive me. But I Wikipedia, by, Wikipedia. right, <laughs> and then by uh, by by 1980, you know, when he came back with uh, the We Want Miles and and um, these the the Man with a Horn and all these albums that he, mm. you know, every, jazz critics are kind of tough. They're like, oh, that's not perfect. Or, oh, hey, you know, they they were, all, but really, he was cultivating the next guys like Mike Stern, right, John Schofield, uh, Marcus Miller. And all these guys that would end up being big guys in jazz that were 
working with Miles into the 80s. And then when he got to the comfortable place of, uh, after he made Decoy, he made, uh, what was the, uh, the one with uh, Time After Time? I can remember it. What can I? I know I will. Two tours. Oh, uh, you're under arrest. That's the one where Sting plays a French whistle. And it has, it has McLaughlin, John McLaughlin, and John Schofield on it. Is, what was the name of that one? Uh, Tutu right. or something Tutu like that. 2-2 came in 86. 2-2 yeah. uh-huh. was different because 2-2 was his, it was a very different Miles thing because, you know, he's, he's talking with um, Marcus Miller and he gets the idea, hey, maybe I don't need all these uh, sessions musicians. Maybe I can just record parts with, uh, with you. And he kind of got used to working with technology a little bit, mm-hmm. which if you're, you know, he could do it where it doesn't seem selfish and weird because, you know, he went back to having a band by the time he did a mandala in uh, 1989. Aura in 89 was some, one he did overseas. He got an award for that. Or he was getting an award from overseas. And John McLaughlin's on that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of Europeans on that. And, um, you know, it just it just resonated really well. Yeah, that that was, guy, Pal, Pal Mickelborg, was the uh, trumpet player with him on that. And then he went in his uh, mini rap direction for a, a tiny bit, which was uh, he did that. They released Dubop in 1992. He had died in 1991. And then I remember in 2019, just not too long ago, they released uh, Rubber Band, which was uh, little, little fractions of songs that were reworked. So I mean, it's great again, like uh, what we talked about, like in our, our other episodes. I mean, we live in an amazing time because in the last 15, 20 years, there were so many albums that were that got re-released with so many bonus tracks. And so many. There are uh, live shows that now uh, they have kind of uh, a legal clearance, so they can, can they can get released, and uh, and we are we are just enjoying the. <laughs> we make it out so well with the bonus mm-hmm. cuts and the uh, box sets. Of, uh, of different things. Now, the thing for the listener that they say, hey, why should I listen to Miles Davis or whatever? Mm-hmm. Well, think about it like this. Think about I mean, like, who went... And, and where, in whichever era you want, you, you won't be disappointed. And who went five, five decades? Who did that, right? So if you have in the late 40s, the tail end of, mm-hmm. uh, of the, the incubation of Bebop, and you find those early albums with songs with uh, Charlie Parker, mm-hmm. and then you get into, you know, Miles Davis... Uh, all stars more or less and then you move into the first quintet in the 1950s and, and realize if you realize he played he would do a date with you know Sonny Rollins and one with Jackie McLean one with like Thelonious Monk he had all these big names dropping into his band Horace Silver uh, just just people that you'd be like oh wow I didn't realize that and then he got to that that quintet and then Coltrane and Miles and, and then the other relationship that developed in the late 50s, Gil Evans. Mm-hmm. So Gil Evans, when he did Miles Ahead, mm-hmm. jumping into orchestral, uh, jazz orchestral type territory, mm-hmm. he was, and then moving into like Porgy and Bess, he was, I think him and Miles got along really well. Two different kinds of guys because Gil Evans looking like, a, you know, he's a Canadian, very straight-laced diplomat looking guy. He wasn't, quote unquote, in it for the money or mm-hmm. the glory. He... Which I mean, he had his own musical journey. I mean, there's a Hendrix album as well yeah. of his uh, arrangements. I mean, he's yeah. he's the man. He the, he the, had a he had a great vision, but he also he didn't get paid or accredited mm-hmm. for a lot of stuff he did with Miles. Mm-hmm. Talked about in a book about Gil Evans, but by the time yeah, he did, we won't get much into dirty laundry stuff. I uh, yeah, like let's stick to music. Oh, we are. There, there will be lots of 
but but Spanish stuff there. <laughs> but Sketches of Spain being the biggest like well-known mm-hmm. album uh, for for Miles Davis and Gil Evans taking um, all these pieces and just really reworking them like a, a concerto di arange. I mm-hmm. guess maybe I said it wrong, but the rework of that is just it's it, it strikes as very beautiful because Miles' horn over the way it was uh, scored came off really beautiful and uh, I'll give you a quick laugh um, for there was a show on television people might remember on AMC Mad Men did you ever see that show so Mad Men was about you know advertising guys that worked you know Fifth Avenue back in the 1950s oh the, the show from the last yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. so Donald I, Draper the I main saw, I think the first two episodes but it's so, very well done so very, I remember uh, watching, yeah watching it one John time Hamm, yeah. John Hamm John uh-huh. Hamm and, you know, he's always got girlfriends on the side of his wife. So he gets this young, hip, hipster chick who lives in the village. And um, he goes to she's, she, he goes to her apartment because he just would hang out. And then all of a sudden, like, all these young guys are sitting around. And while I'm watching the episode, I thought I heard the percussion at the beginning of Sketches of Spain. And I'm like, wait, is that it? And sure enough, they put it on. He had, so all of a sudden, actual version. Yeah, that they licensed. They um, look. They look at, and then they look at. Um, they they look at Donald Draper, and they're, and they're like, because they're like the hippies, and he's like the unhip businessman at this point, and they're like, "Hey man, we're gonna." And he goes, "So what are you what are you doing?" And and they go, "He goes, yeah, well, you know, we're gonna get high. We're gonna listen to sketches of Spain from Miles Davis," and Donald Draper just goes, "That's what you're going to do." <laughs> like he just he just he found an alien and then these guys all pass out listening to sketches of Spain and I'm like okay I'm okay you know you want to use the album like that uh, just for fun and then Gil Evans also wrote parts for the quintet in the 60s so with all the stuff when you have a guy like Wayne Shorter as a as the tennis saxophone player and you know you have guys like Herbie Hancock floating around and, and guys who can write like Ron Carter wrote a composition or two Still, he would bring in Gil Evans quietly to come in and say, "Hey, could you uh, maybe help you know arrange this a little better?" And uh, he would happily. So you got different phases of Miles. That's why I would recommend people to listen to him because let's say if you're into the virtuosity of a John Coltrane, then you got to dive into his work with Miles mm-hmm. Davis because you'll enjoy it thoroughly. If you're Looking at bebop as a big interest, you'll get that out of his uh, earlier group, his uh, non-ed of nine people, uh, with Jerry Mulligan, who was born in Queens Village. And then if you go into, you know, the 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 modal jazz that he would do with Kind of Blue, and then the orchestral stuff, then the 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 quintet doing, he wasn't doing free jazz, which a lot of people were doing. He was doing his version of, hey, this is yeah. just more interesting quintet and then, jazz. And then Betty Davis. Betty Davis period, right? And importance of Betty Davis right. in his career—it's uh, unmeasurable, actually. You know that uh, I think should uh, be more credited. He had when, when, when the entire uh, entire change of the markets happened, you know, when uh, when rock and roll became new pop right. at that time, after jazz kind of started, you know, fading from that uh, mainstream uh, spot, you know. So when he was, uh, I, I watched a documentary about him, and you can see that he was unhappy about uh, all of these uh, young rock bands, kind of all of a sudden <laughs> making all that money and selling the venues, and he's yeah. playing clubs again, and uh, 
So he wanted to make a change. And then around that time, he met Betty Davis and then she was much younger than him and she influenced his, uh, you know, even his style of dressing up. You know? He to look like Sly and, Stone and Jimi yeah, Hendrix. Yeah, and she uh, introduced him to Jimi Hendrix and everybody. And uh, yeah, so it, uh, it really, uh, they even they actually... Recently, I, I, I listened to this Betty Davis album of unreleased stuff that was uh, produced by Miles. I mean, he was in a studio and you can hear him, you know, in, on some of the tracks kind of making comments. But he's created as, uh, as producer. So, so it was really, uh, it was very short, but very uh, eventful relationship between them. And uh, if you haven't, you must check out Betty Davis. Betty Davis, who was... Uh, Miles Davis's wife for a short period, and then she uh, she had a solo career. She had a few albums in the uh, early to mid seventies, and she was a revolutionary in her own way. So check her out, Betty Davis. There's a nice documentary too about her that just came out That's two good. three years ago. So the the fact that people helped him and he helped other people was a really good symbiotic relationship. So I think where people broke away from him and found success, I'll do my best to just roll them off. <laughs> Think about it as guys that, that took off away from him and did really well. John Coltrane, Cannonball, um, Cannonball so, Adderley. So many to mention. I think right. and everybody's a giant. Bill uh, Evans. His uh, shirt. And right. Herbie Hancock. And, and then... Marcus even, Miller, and, John Scott. And even <laughs> George Benson stopped in for, uh, for the album uh, Miles in the Sky great Joe Beck was on a, a, a Miles Davis thing but then when you look at Wayne Shorter jumping out of the Miles Davis group with Joe Zawinul from you know Europe mm. and they make weather report so look at when Miles is in his electric creational phase what really happens Tony Williams believe it or not drummer and the, first guy to kind of leave and, and say yeah I'm going to do Lifetime he mm. does Lifetime with, uh, with Larry Young who he had used wow. on Bitches Brew and John McLaughlin, and to be joined later by Jack Bruce. So you had a, that was a fusion-esque jazz mm. rock band that excited people. And, and you know. And, and not to forget, actually, I think very, very important uh, is Billy Cobb Spectrum. Yeah. I think there's, there are all of these influences, I mean, came from that uh, Miles period. He, he, and, uh, <laughs> and that became, I think at that time, it was the best-selling jazz album of the era, you know, Spectrum by Billy Cobb. He and was, that's how I got actually into Miles Davis. I got to it through uh, Deep Purple. He's, Deep Purple, Tommy Bowling, yeah, uh, I, I, Billy Cobham, and uh, and then all of these other guys, Jan Hammer and uh, Lee Sklar there. So it's uh, such a unique, uh, unique combination. And they're all they're all different drummers. So like, Billy Cobham also plays on the the Jack Johnson album, which is almost like semi rock, with mm -hmm. John McLaughlin, and uh, so Herbie Hancock as another major breakaway figure away from Miles at some point. I mean, he literally launched uh, his own little electric revolution that went into funk and air different areas, but already was, was tying up for the task by doing a bunch of solo albums on the side, film soundtracks, and by the time he did Headhunters, he was all friggin' six cylinders. And, and he was, and he had Bernie Malpin in that band playing bass clarinet, who was on Bitches Brew. Right, so Bitches Brew has all the guys on it that would go out into different places. Uh, Jack DeJohnette also. But uh, Chick Corea, right, who uh, mm -hmm. later would, who would first replace uh, Herbie Hancock on keyboards, was, you know, an amazing 
player in not just you know going into the electric keyboards that Miles asked him to, and when Miles wanted to drive, uh, I guess bitches brew around like a car, if you will, he took that quintet to Europe, which was Wayne Shorter, Dave Holland doing electric bass and acoustic bass, uh, Chick Corea doing uh, Fender Rhodes, you know keyboards, piano, and then uh, Jack DeJohnette on drums. It was a very exciting quintet. They played the Fillmore. But if you listen to one of these, uh, what they called the bootleg series, even though it wasn't really a bootleg, Live in Europe came out in about 2013 or so, around somewhere around that time. It's a three-CD set, and there are drum solos, bass solo. But and everything is different every night. Yeah. Actually, I, I listened to that. And so that that That's, I was really impressed with because they kept. But but, but it, it really showed what what it was about. It's all music, and it uh, it happens. Some it, it was they live in a moment, and they, and then but it wasn't. They, but also it was pulling from the other stuff mm -hmm. he was doing. He was pulling from the the quintet stuff a little bit, like songs like Directions. And Mascalero, he was doing those songs live, Wayne Shorter, you know, compositions, and then pushing it into the bitches brew thing. But then realized something about that setup: there were uh, European members that he worked with, and then eventually, there weren't a lot of European members. There were a lot of more American guys popping into the band, right? So, you know, after you got from out of, uh, I'd say after you got out of Jack Johnson and you got into the... Uh, and then you had Ayrton, you know, so it's uh, you get people from all around. On the on the corner, you had funky, uh, yeah. like Michael Henderson. Yeah, I have on the corner. Mike, Michael Henderson from uh, Stevie Wonder, he recruited him because he, he goes, I don't know anything about jazz, I don't need you to know anything about jazz, just play what you're playing. And then and McLaughlin actually plays really well. But then guys like Dave Liebman, into the, uh -huh. you know, get that, Steve Grossman. Yeah, and he, he was part of that, uh, you know, Isle of Wight documentary, so he was, yep. uh, he gave some good interviews. And, and then he gets to get these uh, these guitar players like Pete Cozy to get into the band that, would, that did the backup on, um, you know, uh, Electric Mud from Muddy Waters, right? Yeah, 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 uh, uh, can't, uh, who's the other guy? Yeah, yeah, Pete Cozy and uh, it'll come to me. Reggie Lucas, I think was the other guitar player. And you, you had, uh, you know, like I said, Michael Henderson, and then you had Al Foster on drums, and you had uh, Bedell Roy, and all this percussion happening. And what was dropping out was more the, the main keyboard function mm -hmm. was dropping away. And then by the time you got to those last key live albums recorded in Japan that are pretty amazing, uh, Agharta and Pangea, Miles himself is playing the organ when he's not playing the uh, trumpet. And they're just going for that. They're a very straight funk beat, but they take it into places that's not straight funk. It's not jazz. There's improvisation. I think guys like, uh, again, Dave Liebman, Steve Grossman, they get their rocks off just, just going crazy on that. So a lot of players' careers, and I didn't even name all of them. I'm just touching on them. But in the 80s, all those guys went out and did careers uh, that played with them. Like we already said, Marcus Miller and Schofield, uh, Mike Stern, Mike Stern huh? right? All these, so there's a lot of love for this guy Miles Davis from different generations. When he uh, was at the end of his career, he willingly slash surprisingly did that retrospective concert with Quincy Jones, where they invited all the oh yes yeah so everybody in documentary yeah. right. So sadly, you know, uh, he uh, he actually performed in Belgrade. Just before he passed away, like maybe in the last year or something like that, and uh, and I didn't see it. I was I was very young, but <laughs> I mean, you know, well, I, saw I, I I wasn't into it. I saw yet. him for you. 
I swam for you. That was the same year, yeah. You know, I, I, I was, I was happy to see him. I'm not gonna lie and say he was perfect that night because everybody had the same conclusion. But I was glad he was there. You know, as we talked about uh, just before, you know, you see some of your idols, and even if they're not on best night, Eh, but you, but you, but you see them, huh? Yeah, I mean, I I appreciate it. I I would never judge them, especially when, when I was a kid, you know, at that time, and like, uh, and back then when I when I was growing up, no, not many bands would come. So, so you really cherish every moment, you know. We had uh, within a few years, we had BB uh, King, and then we had uh, Mick Taylor came with Snowy White, and then uh, well, James Brown came. So mm-hmm. they were very kind of uh, mixed, uh, mixed, uh, you know, lineups, you know, of, uh, of bands and artists. So, so every single show you see, you really cherish and you're thankful for it. So. I think so. I okay. out of all his albums, even though it's easy to say, oh, I like Bitches Brew, but I do like Bitches Brew a lot. I always uh, go back to it. I'm I, always listening yeah, to it. I, I don't. I never it, stop. It's great, but it's like it, it's rock and roll. It, it's heavy. It's heavy experimental. It very much stuff. is. But uh, I, I'm thinking, you know, if I if I would choose album to recommend to somebody who's never listened to Miles Davis, maybe it would be a kind of glue. Because everything is so easy for in people. your face and so kind of yeah, you, you can digest it and uh, and you can really enjoy the the beauty of it. It uh, gets to be one of the most recommended jazz albums of all time, so it's like an easy go to. And no, I, I, I knew one friend of mine who said, "Ooh, I didn't know if I could get into that." I go, "Good, but we can't talk about jazz then. You're done. You know, I won't waste time with you." But if I had to go beyond that, four people. I mean, sure, sketches of Spain. If just to go a different route. Mm-hmm. Um, Milestones was also pretty straight ahead. Um, still staying more bop right before Kind of Blue. I'd recommend that. On the side of uh, the quintet in the 60s, I would say Miles Smiles. And if they can handle the Nefertiti aggression, you know, they, he amps it up a little bit with that acoustic quintet. Mm. That's, a, that's just great to listen to. Because uh, you can just hear it going a certain way before he starts breaking it into uh, electric keyboards break in mm-hmm. when he gets to, you know, uh, the other albums I, I that think, will come I in. think what makes Miles Davis great that if you really get into Miles Davis, you can start collecting and listening to all, the, all of these albums and you can spend your entire life just dedicating time to listening to Miles Davis. And you always have something fresh to revisit because, you know, you get tired of electric period, you go to, to like... 50s and then you go to 60s and then if you want to listen to some like funkier stuff you know or like whatever the 80s were so you know you will discover very different uh, eras and very different bands but he he was the one who connected all of this all of it and you can't get tired of it you're right i i do that i just flip back and forth and i'd recommend people go listen to miles davis discover make your own conclusions you make your own podcast on it for a week, yeah? We'd be good with that. Yeah, and actually, turn this pod- podcast off right now. Go and listen. Listen and enjoy. There's so much great music that you can Agreed. discover. Because you know why? Because we have to go catch the roundabout. Catch the roundabout.